0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance in the Crawl Space studios in Wormtown. What's up, Lance? Oh, God. Living the dream. How are you today? Ah, same. Ditto. Living the dream. We're here today talking to a favorite of ours, someone who's really great. Kind of, We just got introduced to her via Jordan of the Nighttime Podcast. Her name is Brooke Giddings, Lance, and she is really a uh, true crime podcast all-star.
1: Yes, yeah, she is a one-woman show and sort of a hero of ours. She is a very hard-working person in the podcast industry. She has three shows out there right now. Her baby is actual innocent. She also has Convicted, and she has
0: one for A&E. Called Cold Case Files. Called which Cold is, Case Files. Yeah, you may have heard of one or all of these. Uh, so she's great. And uh, the the conversation's really interesting, and uh, so we really hope you enjoy it. So check it out, and also check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast where we have released our first episode of the True Crime Variety Half Hour.
1: That's very exciting stuff. It's something that we had talked about for a while, and it's something that we hadn't seen done before. We don't always like focusing on the serious stuff. We try to keep it sane around here at times and this is something that helps us to keep it sane and in a way show our lighter side our our comedic side
0: yeah so follow us on Twitter we're at crawlspace pod we're also on Instagram and Facebook at crawlspace podcast and we should be releasing a trailer some kind of promotional material with some video from that Patreon variety show coming soon so check it out and check out this interview with Brooke Giddings subscribe to her shows in the show notes thank you very much Talking to Brooke Giddings. How are you, Brooke?
2: I am doing well. I'm doing really good.
1: Thank you so much for joining us here. How do you like the Crawl Space Studio? How do you like the black box?
2: I am pretty impressed. Um, I would like to see the outside.
1: There is no outside.
2: Yeah, that's what I think. No. <laughs> is it? <laughs> is it like? Did you guys build it, or is it? I podcasters want to know, or is it like a room that you have?
0: We have a ten by thirty studio. And this black box takes up about a third of that. And it's
1: pipe and base and crossbars. And we've hung sound-absorbing curtains along the perimeter. So uh, the front here, if we were to turn the, the Skype around, you'd be able to see the, the entrance and the exit. So it's like a curtain. It opens and shuts. And uh, right here is where, you know, street side. The streets of Wormtown <laughs> I are just just feet away from us here mere feet mere feet (laughs) but hey you where did you start
2: like what did your first studio look like i just want to know where you came from because i've been with you this whole time and now i'm like talking to my heroes and i would like (laughs) to know if you started in the closet like me
0: this yes well i mean this is uh our first studio in in this work we started off doing it ourselves Uh, We got together for the first few, but we were just, like, in a porch and then in Lance's kitchen, and then (laughs) it was just over Skype, and we would record our own ends, so it sounded like when you put them together, it sounded like we were next to each other, but in reality, we were looking at each other over Skype. Got it. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, this is the first real studio where you know we have a table between us and we can actually have a have a conversation. And I think that there is a difference when you listen
0: to it. There, It's made a big difference for us in editing, especially. It's cut down editing time. Yeah. Because you don't have to do the editing, really. You don't have to sync it. You don't have to worry about that. You just kind of cut other tracks while, like I'll cut my track while Lance is talking and vice versa. That's about it. But uh, yeah, and we got this studio last October. So a little over a year we've been here in Wormtown.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Wormtown? Wormtown—that's a real place.
0: <laughs> no, it's uh, a nickname for Worcester, Massachusetts, which is right about in the middle of the state of Massachusetts. Got it. Next so... time
2: I'm in the area, I'll stop by. <laughs>
0: Please, oh, that'd be great. Are, are open, you in the area? Open door policy. Yeah, absolutely. Are you in the, are you in the area often?
2: Um, not anymore. My what, uh, the first season of Convicted was in um, Cumberland. Okay. So it's kind of it was quite. Well, it wasn't in Cumberland, but I went to Cumberland. It was kind of near D.C., so the top part of the state. But if I ever go back that way, I'll I'll make
0: a trip. So, yeah, let's talk about you. So you, a lot of people call (laughs) us the hardest working people in true crime podcasting, but we defer to you because (laughs) uh, you have three podcasts, uh, very popular ones, Cold Case Files, Actual Innocence, and Convicted. Can you tell us a little bit about those?
2: Yes. Um, So Actual Innocence was first. And it started with me in a closet with, you know, one of those eggshell mattress pads. Sure. And um, a microphone that I had borrowed from someone else. So my LLC is Borrowed Equipment Podcast. Um, And what had happened was I'm a social worker, like by trade. Like I was working as a therapist for children 10 and under, which is an amazing job, an amazingly hard job, but amazing and rewarding because... Since little, I was little, all I wanted to do is save the world. So um, I was saving the world one little kid at a time. But while I was doing that, I watched Making a Murderer. And I don't know about Stephen Avery. I wouldn't let him babysit my children if I had them. Um, but Brendan Dassey stole my heart. Because he could have been any one of those kids that come came to my office. And... I thought, wow! I didn't know the police could be manipulative like that. I didn't know that people got wrongly convicted. And I'm an educated person, so if I don't know, who else doesn't know? Um, so, as a social worker, I was like, how many times, to- How can I spread the word to as many people as possible? I know. I like podcasts. I'll make a podcast. I didn't know how to make a podcast. Um, so, like I said, I brought a microphone. I had an old, old, old Windows computer. And um, I started making a podcast about making a murder with a with a colleague of mine. Um, and we made 10 episodes. And she was like, I can't do this anymore. I don't have time. Because podcasting is hard. Like, I think people hear, you know, your hour a week or whatever and think it took you an hour a week to make that. But So much work goes into it. And so our last episode was an interview with a woman named Julie Bomber who had been wrongly convicted. And it was so powerful. And I was like, wow, I could just listen to this all the time. And I should make a podcast like this. And so I did. I called it Actual Innocence. (laughs) And um, each episode is an interview with someone who has been exonerated for a crime they did not commit. And it's men, women, um, black, white, everywhere in between. And it's very educating how manipulative and scary our justice system really is. I mean, not to judge, but, you know, it makes me scared to ever have any interactions with the police. Um, no one is qualified to ever talk to the police alone, Um I have learned that I am not qualified to talk to the police on my own behalf just to clear things up. While I was doing that, I did a couple of episodes called The Helpers, and one of them was with a attorney who does post-conviction work in Maryland. And she said, have you ever heard of this case? Um, It was a man named Richard Nicholas. And I was like, no, I'm a social worker in Indiana. I have not heard of this case in Maryland. She's like, well, you should read it. And I'm like, well, that's not really what I do. But I read it. I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to do this. So I started Convicted. Convicted is um, a long-form podcast. And the first season is 10 episodes about a man named Richard Nicholas, who is actually in prison with and knows Adnan. Um, his attorney, one of his defense attorneys, was none other than Christina Gutierrez. Oh, really? And... Yeah, and his prosecutor was Sharon May, who you may have seen on The Keepers um, from Netflix. So he, um, he got a really raw deal. I don't know. Um, I don't believe he's guilty. But even if he were, he did not get a fair trial. And if a guilty person doesn't get a fair trial or an innocent person doesn't get a fair trial, either way... That sets a precedent for all of us to not get a fair trial. And so Convicted um, was where podcasting really became my main focus. So um, after I started Convicted, I started like researching it probably in September um, of a couple years ago. Um, And I also at the same time got sick with some mystery illness that my doctors didn't know what it was. And when I came out of I was in the hospital for like a week. And when I came out of the hospital, they said I had fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome um, on top of whatever the mystery illness was. And so those things make it really hard to be consistent. Basically, sometimes I hurt when I don't really hurt, like my brain thinks I do. And sometimes I randomly get really tired for no reason. And um the kids that I had been working with had a lot of inconsistent adults in their lives and I couldn't be another one of those people. I was, I was supposed to be helping them. So I actually did some editing for undisclosed, um, line editing. So I was the one who, who put their sound together. Oh, cool. Um, Robbie, Susan and Colin, spoiler alert, not in the same room (laughs) (laughs) and, um, they're wonderful people though. And then, convicted was when I finally was able to pay my bills. (laughs) So it was number one on the podcast charts for exactly one hour, um, right under S-Town, darn you S-Town for coming out at the same time. (laughs) And um, it was number two for a long time. And it was really amazing to me. Like I learned so much from that experience. I put so much research into it. Um, but I was also doing Actual Innocence, and I was trying to be a one man team. And you cannot be a one man team, especially if you're a woman. Um, I wasn't sleeping; it was really, really not healthy. But it was really a learning
0: experience. Okay, take us through that. What happened? Why? Why weren't you sleeping? Why did you say that you can't do it as a woman as a one man team?
2: Well, because you're I'm not a man. Oh, so...
0: I <laughs> team. I answered my own there my own go. question. Okay, <laughs> maybe just answer the first part.
2: Okay, so in march of two years ago last year whenever whenever that year was um 97 i think i was at the innocent network conference so the innocence project which most people are familiar with they have a conference every year where exonerees can come for free they can bring a support person with them there's a lot of attorneys there and I know I had talked with Marty Tancliffe. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a pretty famous exoneree. And he introduced me to Meredith Kennedy, who is the person who heads up the Innocence Conference. And he said, Brooke should have a table there. So people who want to say something can come out and say something. And so I was there. Um, Susan was also there. Susan from Undisclosed was there. And I got this email. And I looked at it. And it said it was from A and E. And so they were like, "We're doing this podcast. Would you be interested in being the host?" And I thought it was spam because I am nobody. <laughs> and so what I said to the people I thought were spamming me was, "I'm at the Innocence Conference. I'll get back to you next week." Um, my friend who was with me said, "You just hung up on A and E." But I didn't believe you know, I didn't believe it.
0: You're talking A and E, the television network. Yes. Okay. Arts and entertainment. Gotcha.
2: If if they had emailed you when you were in Lance's kitchen, would would you have believed it?
0: Definitely not. No, we've definitely gone through periods where uh, where we get an email that seems really cool, and it's uh, it takes. I, I find myself ignoring it, and then kind of coming back to it. It's in my head, but I don't actually think about it until I sit back down and realize what happened
1: right because like you said you read it and you think well who am i yeah right right. uh, yeah that's my denial process process. i don't have an agent i don't yeah how did they even get my info
2: right exactly it was imposter syndrome so right i did email them back next week so keep in mind this is march convicted came out in april um so turns out it was a and e and they wanted me to host their Cold Case Files podcast. So I, the person I was emailing with, um, his name is Ted. He's very, very nice. Shout he out was to Ted. Like, shout out to Ted. He was like, can you hop on a call? So I'm like, okay, they want to talk to me. Um, what I did not realize with this was that this h- call I was hopping on was an interview. And I don't remember too much about the call other than I said, Can we talk about me? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I can do this, but I learned how to podcast in that closet right there. You know, I'm not a professional, I'm a social worker. Like, that's who I am. And I think part of what sells me is that I'm authentic. Like, I don't say things that I don't mean. And so I'm not an actor. Like, basically, I wanted to get it out there that I am who I am. So I'm not going to to sensationalize crime for the benefit of a podcast.
0: So you said you were a social worker and they said, perfect!
2: Right, because... we make they- you a star. <laughs> no, they did not say that. And oh, okay. actually, disclaimer, I have never had a desire to be famous. Um, I have never wanted to do anything but help people. Um, I make zero dollars off of Convicted. So, season two. So I was... Like, yes, let me, I can do this. So, um, turns out, that was my interview, and I was apparently very entertaining, um, because they offered me to be the host of Cold Case Files, which they wanted to start a couple weeks after Convicted was going out. So, I had a couple of episodes of Convicted banked, but I did not have any episodes of Actual Innocence banked, and at that time, I didn't have enough connections in the innocence world to... To bank them. So I was creating Actual Innocence, which went out weekly, um, created and convicted, which was going out weekly and required a ton of research. And I was helping A&E learn how to podcast and creating <laughs> a podcast for them. So that's a lot of time. Um, so I wasn't sleeping because I was either writing, listening, editing, because I edited my own stuff and I was not great at it. If you listen to the first episode of Actual Innocence and then listen to the end episodes of Actual Innocence, you will see a huge editing difference.
1: But I think that that is somewhat endearing that you are, as our friend John Ronson said, there's a there, it is endearing to be that unvarnished. And I think yeah. that's what the appeal is when you're when you're not hearing
0: a, a super produced piece. People like hearing the journey and following a person uh, through their journey of improving uh, technically and things like that. Sort of a, I used to know them back when.
2: Right, exactly. Um, I get a lot of emails or if I've met people in person at conferences, I get a lot of, I feel like when you're there, I'm just talking to a friend. I was doing all these things at once and convicted was at number one. And this was um I was so proud of this, and I think that they probably won't mind, but um a n e cold case files I was hosting wasn't on the charts, and so one day, um one week, I had to I could not get the convicted done in time, so I put it out there, I said, "Hey, convict is not coming out this week, um whatever reason I said." And then I said, but you should check out Cold Case Files, the podcast. I hear it's pretty good. The next day, it was in the top 10.
0: Nice. So
2: I I emailed the producers that I was working with and I said, welcome to the big chart, guys. (laughs) Um, It was but it was, um, I think, kind of proof that my authenticity sells me that that people believe me because I don't say I have turned down many a sponsor that I don't believe in because I'm not. And, and I, I'm not motivated by money. I'm motivated by, by helping. And I treat each listener as a potential advocate. Like I get so many, how can I help emails? And, and so how you can help is by doing whatever you're good at and using it for something you believe in.
0: That's a good way to look at that. Yeah, that's
1: a very noble cause. And I love that you treat your listeners as potential advocates, like you're building an army. Right. You know, and I don't want to be the general,
2: I, but um, right. <laughs> yeah, I think that everybody is good at something. You know, I'm good at connecting with people. So that's what I did.
0: That's right. I, I'm not good at hiking or walking through the woods but looking you tried. for something, but I tried. But I think we're pretty good at podcasting. We're okay. We're doing that. We're okay. We're. we're...
2: I think you're pretty good. All right. Thanks.
0: I would love to
1: talk (laughs) with you about your trip that you just came back from.
2: Oh, my gosh. It was so amazing.
0: Are you talking about the vet or Disney World? (laughs) Um, Actually, it was in between
2: those two. Disney World is my happy place. Um, But last week, um, okay, so let me start at the beginning. Two of the first exonerees that I interviewed for Actual Innocence were John White and Clarence Harrison, and they're both from Georgia, the Greater Atlanta area. And they had a theme in common. I always ask the question, "So how are you doing now?" Because everybody gets so excited when someone's exonerated, but how many times do you hear people checking in with them a couple of years later, two or three or four, ten or whatever? And both of them told me, I'm not really doing okay. And that was sad. Like, it was sad to me because I try to find the good in everything. And yes, they were glad they had been exonerated. But life is hard, especially when you missed all of those life stages that teach you how to be an adult, how to budget.
1: How did they tell you that? And were you surprised when they said that to you? Because So you asked them, how are you doing now? And were you surprised when they said, I'm not okay?
2: I, I don't know that I was surprised, but I was concerned. Okay. And so I talked to both of them, and I thought, you know what? I can help. Like, So right now, w- when I started social work, when I graduated, I was a therapist. That's, that's micro social work. And I had to take this class on macro social work, and I hated it. I was like, I'm never going to do anything like that. I see what I'm doing now is macro social work. And the benefit is you reach more people. The The struggle for some people is that you don't have that direct connection. Like you don't see the work, like you don't see the people that you're helping directly always. So I was like, I can help and get my micro social work fix. So I went to Georgia and we had a meeting and it was Clarence and John and a couple of other exonerees that I hadn't interviewed the head of the GIP and some local social workers. And we talked about what, what was, what did they need? Like what, why are they not doing okay? And one of the biggest issues was they felt isolated. Nobody understood what they were going through. And so um, from that meeting, they started like a support group, kind of like a get together that they have every month. And it is my understanding that they're doing much better because of that. So um, I've kept in t- touch with John and Clarence just because they were very eye opening to me. And the fact that I went there and there were results like I could see the results that my macro level social work was having on individuals. I love it. So I got contacted by a man named Ryan Dingle, who is a teacher at Naperville North High School. It's a suburb of Chicago. Shout out to Ryan. Shout out to Ryan, who is an amazing teacher. And he was like, do you know anybody local who would come and talk to my students? And so I live about an hour and a half from Chicago proper. So I was like, let me see what I can do. So we got John and Clarence here um, using my airline miles and um, we went there and he had his class there. Um, Some other teachers brought in their classes and another school brought their students. And we talked about John and Clarence and their stories and their struggles. And the students at Naperville North, most of them look like us. They don't look like John and Clarence who are black and Naperville is one of the most wealthy suburbs of Chicago. So these kids, the kids were amazing too. Shout out to all the students. Um, All I know is that there were two kids named Michael because they volunteered, both Michaels. Um, And they had amazing questions. They were very attentive. And at the end, um, the teacher said, anybody who wants to be in a picture can go up on the stage and be in a picture with the guys. And every student came up. And John just kept talking about that for the rest of the trip, you know, all the students came up like, so it was amazing for me to be able to see the, those two men who were not doing okay, and they're not doing su- superb right now, but they're doing better than what they were. But to see them, their confidence build just during that two hours that they were there and to see the students, like the wheels turning our future you know, turning like, this is not okay. You know, these are potential advocates that can make change in the future. Like processing this information and everybody together. It was just this incredible experience.
1: What were John and Clarence incarcerated for and for how long each?
2: Okay. I don't remember the numbers exactly. Um, I know, I think John was 27 years and it was for rape and Clarence was like rape and robbery and something else um and both of them were exonerated by DNA but th- this is where it's so sad because we don't hear the after stories we, people like the after stories don't seem to get out there and i think that's where there's a gap in and because people like to sensationalize things and these aren't necessarily sensational stories but Clarence received a settlement of a million dollars which sounds like a lot of money, unless you have never been taught how to budget and you don't realize it's going to be taxed. So after Clarence got out, he got hit by a car. So his money was supposed to get paid out X amount per year, but he took like a lump sum instead of having it paid out. So that way he could like take care of his, he didn't have insurance. And so he took a lump sum, And he didn't know it was going to be taxed. So he spent his money. And then he had to declare bankruptcy to pay his taxes. So he was back at nothing. And he couldn't claim disability or Social Security because he had not had the opportunity to pay into it. But yeah, because when you're in prison, you don't pay into Social Security. I mean, the $12 a month that you earn, they don't put that into Social Security for you. Even if you're innocent. He was a kid when he went into prison, but but he he left prison with zero dollars and nowhere to go. And it took a couple of years for him to get his million. And so when I was 16, I can't budget now. So when I was 16, I really couldn't budget and to not ever have to have had budgeted. He wouldn't I don't know that he would have known how to spend it anyway. But this car accident was the catalyst that made it happen so fast. And John's story is also tragic because he got a settlement also. And I don't remember the amount, but it's supposed to be paid out in, they call it an annuity. And we had to look it up. None of us at the table knew what it meant, including the teachers. But basically, they put the amount that they were supposed to give him into, I guess, stocks or some kind of market. And what he gets per year is the interest on that money. What? So he didn't, yeah, he didn't really get the money. He's getting interest on the money. So basically he's loaning the state his money. And John has to either maintain employment or do community service, have a valid address in a certain county, take a drug test every month. Basically, he's on probation for being innocent To get his money. So that's like if someone has a nine to five to get their paycheck, they would have to do all those other things.
0: That's really messed up.
1: Yeah. Do you think that's the the, uh, incompetence or the arrogance of the system saying we know we made a mistake and you've been officially exonerated by DNA, but they still go through the process that they would go through with someone who was guilty and released from prison? Is that just the, the arrogance of the system?
2: I think it's a state-by-state thing. Yep. Um, And I think, I don't know that it necessarily should be federal, but I think every state needs to have some kind of, so there are several states, I can't name them, but Georgia is one that doesn't have like a set amount that people get paid. And so you have to, in Georgia, you have to get a private bill passed through both houses of the governing body, which means it has to be sponsored by a legislature. And I think it's just, they don't want to spend the money. Like, I mean, really, I, I think that, and I think that we're unprepared to say we're broken. So if you're not prepared for something to break, if my dog's leash breaks and he runs away, like, I'm not prepared to go and catch him. So I'm just going to do whatever. And I think that that's what they're doing. They're just making it up as they go. I don't think it's arrogance. I think it's just unpreparedness.
1: So more on, more on the incompetence end.
2: Yeah. I'm not going to use the word incompetence. I did. But <laughs> I know. But I think, I think, yeah, I just think that they don't... they. There's not a right way to handle something that's broken that you're not expecting.
0: Right. We kind of, in covering missing person work, we kind of say there's no handbook in dealing with that. Like some odd behavior from a family member or a friend doesn't mean anything suspicious because there's no handbook. People deal with things a certain way. By definition, a wrongful conviction is incorrect. It wasn't supposed to happen. So there's no protocol to deal with it.
2: Right. You know, I've heard of this missing person. Her name is Mara Murray. You guys should look into it.
0: I've heard Write of Write that down. Hang on. Yeah, I've heard of her. <laughs> Scratch that down. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll get to that, uh, that case in a little <laughs> bit.
1: So I, I want to... Uh, I'm fascinated with John and Clarence here. When you took them to Chicago, had they ever traveled before?
2: So they had traveled... Other than to l- prison? Yeah. Um, they had been to two innocence conferences. The first year that you are exonerated um your if you were exonerated by an internet network agency they pay for your lodging and exonerees always get to attend the conference for free so they both got to go their first year and then um not to brag and i okay i'm gonna brag because it's not me it's my listeners the listeners of actual innocence donated the money for john and clarence and two other exonerees to go to an innocence conference. So they were able to go to, and this is amazing too, because they were going to go to the one in San Diego, which was two years ago, but all four exonerees that attend their support group couldn't afford to go to San Diego because California is expensive. So they waited and went to the one that was, well, it was this year, I guess, this year, um, in Memphis because they could drive and they could all afford to go. And so they got to go to that conference because my listeners donated enough for their travel and lodging. It was amazing.
0: I feel like you're holding out on us. What what else aren't you bragging about that we need to know?
2: What else am I not bragging about? <laughs> um well I this isn't really a brag, but it's just a message. Like I'm nobody. I grew up in a town of 400 And it was surrounded by cornfields. I thought the world was flat because once people left, they never came back. And so I went to college near Chicago and I met like people who didn't look like me, which I had not met someone who did not look like me until I was a teenager. And it was amazing. It was this amazing experience. There were so many diverse people and they had so many interesting ideas. And so I think that if you believe in something, you can make a difference. Just just keep trying. That's what, you know, I wanted to help people. And so I became a therapist. And then I couldn't do that anymore. So I borrowed a microphone and talked to myself in my closet. And in the past two years, 90 million people have heard my voice. Like, that's a that's lot it. of people.
0: That's unbelievable.
2: And people are going... To put you down, they're going to say you're speculating, or they're going to say you sound like a 12 year old reading a book report. But whatever they say, so what?
0: They've Just... listened.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, hate listens or listens too, right?
0: Exactly. How do you deal with uh, the criticism that is uh, out there that's inevitable?
2: I don't read the reviews. I don't read the, read the reviews to any of my shows because those aren't for me, those are for other people looking for podcasts to listen to
0: what about the emails that come right into your inbox or the tweets
2: i am really good at diffusing those um i used to get a lot of emails about why do you put ads in the middle of your show and what i would tell them is i'm little if you listen to serial sarah canning she's amazing and serial is a great podcast but i'm not serial i'm one girl and so she has a studio behind her and that studio has money and I have negative 74 cents in my banking account. So when you're listening to a closet made podcast and there are ads in the middle of the episode and it's inconvenient, think of it as paying more to shop local because the little guy has less control over where their ad placement is, what ads they do, how their sound quality is. But their messages come from the heart because they are going through all of that to share what they believe in with you.
1: I would, I would also say that you uh, need to approve your ads for for your show. So maybe the people, instead of being annoyed by the ads, maybe check out that product that you've that you're endorsing because that's a legit endorsement,
0: and you'll get a good deal. But Brooke, everybody knows that if you have ads on your podcast, you're just raking it in. Then you're just raking it in, and you don't care about what you're doing all for the money.
2: So remember that time I told you that I wasn't eating or sleeping or whatever? Yes. Um, during that time, I moved in with a roommate and I spent two months with negative 74 cents in my account because I had no money. And if you think you are raking it in with podcasts, you're wrong. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: um, so actual innocence, when it first started getting advertisements, it almost broke even. Um, and then near the end of Actual Innocence, I actually got a co-host who was an exoneree. And so basically half went to him and the other half went to taxes. <laughs> so still breaking even. Wow. Um, yeah. Convicted season one. Um, So podcasts, the way that you make, mo- the way that podcasts make money is um, through ads, right? And Convicted season one, um it made some money. I donated a lot of it, but the problem was in the beginning podcast networks and Convicted was part of a network didn't know how to pay. Like there there wasn't like an industry standard yet. So it started out with the industry st- like their contract was we pay you when we get paid. So you could go 6 months, 7 months, you know, forever without getting paid waiting for them to get paid by, like, they had to invoice the advertiser, the advertiser had to cut them the check, and then they would have to pay me. And so um, I might have taken a trip there and said to them, listen, I've had negative 74 cents in my bank account for the past two months. I can't eat. Um, I mean, I'm not going to starve to death or anything, but we need to fix this. Like, this is an issue, and we need to fix this. I said, I have... Made you a lot of money. And I would like to work out a system where I can eat. And so we went to like a net 90 system, which is where they said, we'll get back to you next day, which because I thought they were just trying to pacify me. But the next day, they said, we'll go to a net 90 where you get paid three months behind. Um, And that was good. I mean, that was better than six or seven or how many ever months. And then the next month, an email went out to their entire network that everybody was going to get a at 90. And I was thinking in my head, this, OK, this is a brag. You're welcome, guys. You're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that the industry standard keeps um, changing, too.
0: It does. But yeah. Yeah. Good call. The, mor-
2: the moral of the story is you don't make a, mo- a lot of money from podcasting, especially if you're doing it from your closet.
0: And it's a lot of work. It's a labor of love. You wouldn't start a podcast that even becomes successful if it wasn't a labor of love. You cannot make money on it if you're not a celebrity um, right away. It has to be a labor of love at first, and then it can blow up or whatever, and you can make money on it. But unless you're a celebrity bringing a built-in audience to it, you're not going to make anything right away.
2: And I think that now, um, so two years ago, convicted was number one. If Convicted came out tomorrow, I don't think it would be number one because now there are so many podcasts that it's much harder. And, and the networks, I think, are seeing that, wow, podcasts are making money, you know, making money. And networks have money to put in up front. They don't have negative 74 cents. That's right. And so I think that the closet podcaster just starting out now faces many more challenges and much more competition than when I was starting out.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think the timing has some, a lot to do with uh, the success that we had with Missing Maura, Murray Lance, with mm-hmm. true crime uh, it, as... The genre of, coming up. Yeah, an industry in its own um, kind of developing around as we were doing uh, the podcast. We often get the question, how has our lives changed since uh, we began... The podcast and uh, wh- one way I'll share before I ask you, but one way that it's changed for me is a lot of times I would get text messages from friends, high school friends, maybe old coworkers, but you know that has kind of gone away, and now it's like text messages from private investigators and <laughs> other <laughs> and things like that. Former FBI, <laughs> yeah, on, yeah. <laughs> So uh and you know so that's just kind of funny but uh h- how has your life changed?
2: Wow. Um completely and totally. I have always been a problem solver and I'm one of the people that my my friends would come to me and ask, you know, what do you think about this? What would you do? And can you help me with this? And so When you get hundreds of emails from people asking you, um, what can I, not what can I do, but, or telling you, I have this person who's been wrongfully convicted. Can you help them? Or here's a story, you know, can you help me? I can't help everyone. And that's a huge struggle for me because I want to save the world, but I'm just one person. And so I have had to learn it's okay to not save the world. <laughs> it's okay to just do what you can do. It's okay to refer someone to other people who might be able to help them because you know you're not going to be able to do it. Um I've learned that I've learned a lot of marketing like I never realized how much marketing comes into play in podcasts. you know I just I just wanted to help people and now I'm learning, you know, how to advertise and how to sell myself, which sounds kind of dirty, but not really. <laughs> but I'm my product. Like right.
0: it's what you have to do. Yeah.
2: And I've always been I'm very blunt. Anybody who knows me, especially Amy, will tell you that I am very straightforward, but now on social media I have to be very careful with what I'm saying you know, publicly, because who knows who's going to use that against me in some way that is unintentional. I'm sarcastic a lot. And so sarcasm doesn't translate well over the internet. So sometimes I'm joking, and I don't want someone to not know that about me and not take it as a joke.
1: I want to get back to some questions that I have about wrongful incarceration. How how do you handle People who have been released and have become a product of the prison system as far as their mentality. How do how do people come out and not become a criminal because of prison if they were in there and they're actually innocent?
2: Some people who were wrongfully convicted have been to prison before. Like there are so many different kinds of wrongfully convicted people. I mean, anybody could be wrongfully convicted. So I could be. I think that one thing that most of the people who have been wrongfully convicted have in common is that they all have some kind of PTSD. Like, it's traumatic. Going to prison is a traumatic experience, especially if you know you're innocent. Like, it's traumatic. So PTSD manifests in a lot of ways, but a lot of exonerees have told me that they have OCD-like tendencies, which is an anxiety disorder. Everything has to be where it goes. This is mine. It goes here. And they struggle with the relationships with their families, you know, because they have been in this institutional setting with this routine for generally so long that when you are out and free, especially if you were locked up as a child, that freedom, nobody's taught you how to be free as an adult. And so I think that that becomes a big issue. Um, Some people do commit crimes after they have been exonerated i think that um john white stole my heart when we were at that meeting in georgia he was talking about how you know he couldn't afford to live and he said sometimes i think about committing a crime so i can just go back because at least i know i'll be taken care of and that broke my heart
0: yeah Yeah. that's powerful yeah
1: are there and excuse my ignorance for this Are there any programs that exist that they implement in prisons to allow prisoners to handle going back out to the public?
2: Only if you're guilty. There are programs for people who were guilty or not exonerated when they get out of prison transition programs. Yeah. But when you are exonerated, there is no government programs to help you
1: well that's that's really weird to me because you just when you are exonerated and you're innocent and it's been it's I mean by definition when you're exonerated they've acknowledged that you've been wrongfully imprisoned you get you get uh, not awarded that's a horrible way to say it but you get you get your your financial compensation and
2: maybe in some states sometimes
1: sometimes but so you need to figure out how to budget that like it's just funny to me It's just sad to me that there's no program that exists for somebody who's been officially exonerated.
2: I think it's that unpreparedness. We're not prepared for our system to be broken. And so there's no plan for that because we're not wrong. I mean, obviously, that was sarcasm. but (laughs) Thank you. There are many private, Nonprofits that do that I know Obi Anthony has one um, Exonerated Nation um, There's one in Indiana And in Illinois it's called Justice for Justice. There's a lot of Exonerees have started programs For exonerees that are coming out And the Innocence Projects They get so many letters And so many requests for help That they can't keep up either So to free someone and then take care of them They just don't have the finances Or the manpower to do that I think that we have this broken justice system and I don't think that you can get justice in court. I don't think justice is really a thing because the definition of justice is fair, equal. And so if someone is murdered, you cannot bring that person back ever. Like you can't get justice. It's never gonna be fair, right? I think that, Where, instead of being retroactive, we need to be proactive. Most people who are in prison can talk about some kind of trauma, some kind of abuse, um, growing up in poverty, you know. So if we invested the money that we invest in the prison system in those youth when they were younger, we would probably have a lot less prisoners. But our system is backwards. We're trying to be retroactive, but two wrongs don't make a right. Mm-hmm.
1: I've, always, I've always felt that way. And it does take a bit of work to, to put the car in reverse and, and start from the beginning again. Like you said, there's money that is being put into the prison systems. There, there doesn't have to be as much money going into the problem. You can take right. some of that. You can raise more money. I mean, they raise money for the most idiotic things. They can raise $2 billion overnight if they really wanted to for something to do with anything that's not, you know, I'm not going to use specific examples, but you can raise the money to go into programs to prevent that from happening in the first place.
2: Right. And I think that money is a tool. Money is a tool we use to, to fix our lives. But you can't give people a tool and not give them the instructions on how to use it. Exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: So with uh, John and Clarence, you said in the beginning that they weren't doing well because they just didn't seem to feel like they mattered, that they had any purpose.
2: It wasn't that they didn't feel like they mattered. It felt like nobody understood them.
1: Nobody understood them. Do you think that them going to these speaking engagements, do you think that their trip to Chicago and speaking to the students gave them a sense of purpose and a sense of... uh, Maybe now people are starting to especially young people are starting to understand them.
2: yes, um I think that they gained a lot of confidence from the experience and and we gave this example like on the stage, you know, I support Clarence and John in any way that I can, but I can't support them the way they can support each other because I've never had that experience, yeah. but I know that they have they feel more empowered. And they have gained confidence because people are listening to what they have to say.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see it being a lonely experience being a, a wrongfully convicted person, especially getting out, um, because as you described, there's, uh, well, there's really not that many of them. And so how would you not be lonely in that scenario? You kind of have to find someone else who knows what you've been through. How, you know?
2: Or not that many in, in the same group or in right. the same area.
0: Right, we uh we talk to and about John Juka and uh, the wrongful conviction of John Juka, and we've spoken to him on the phone uh, for this show, and just randomly he'll call occasionally. Um, and it's always like kind of like a nerve, a, kind of like a nervous moment because it's like I of course I'm gonna answer, but you walk on eggshells. It's like I don't even want to ask him how are you doing today, but it's the most normal thing to ask, you know? And he's like, I'm hanging in there. It's like I I know. I know that's probably terrible compared to what I'm doing. Like, I don't want to tell you what I'm doing. Also,
1: you have six minutes for the phone call, right? And you don't want to—he, you don't Waste want him to it. think yeah. that he's like, I'm not here to talk pleasantries with you right now. <laughs> yeah. I have what six do you minutes. think? What do you fucking think it's yeah. like in Rikers Island? Yeah, Tim? It's great, <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> but it's just a pleasantry. But that, but that's what I mean. It's like I, I can't relate to him. You know, like uh, I, I can understand where he is and how he got there, but I cannot relate to him. And in fact, it even to such an extent that it kind of makes me nervous to talk to him.
1: Are you familiar with the uh, John Juca case? I'm not. Uh, In a nutshell, he was convicted for the murder of a youth uh, after a party and the person who actually performed the murder is also in jail and for some reason, instead of letting him out and all of the witnesses have recanted, instead of letting them out, they have put him in Rikers to break him. He just has
0: to say... His conviction was overturned by an appellate uh, court. And so instead, so I guess by law, he can't be in a a federal penitentiary because he's not a convicted murderer. So they had to move him somewhere else and they chose Rikers.
2: So they moved him to Rikers until he gets a new trial or until he makes a plea agreement? But
1: his new trials keep getting, his requests get denied and he has moments in the courtroom where he... Has to get emotional and yell at the judge and say, "How can you do this to me?" And then the newspapers hit that, and they're you know convicted uh, child uh, grid kid grid slayer, kid slayer uh, freaks out in court. You know they have these like headline splashy uh, titles for for their
0: articles. The New York Daily News, yeah, they they have covered uh, the case for a lot of years. Um, but y- if you ever want to cover it, I would recommend it and. Uh, his mom I
2: live my life on eggshells.
0: <laughs> his mom, Doreen, is an incredible woman and we've met her and spoken to her f- several times. She went undercover on her own accord and uh, got recordings from one of the jurors uh, who said told her that he knew John before uh, they before the trial. And she approached that. She gave that to the judges, and they actually threw it out. But she went undercover, and there were me- very many articles written about that moment. Yeah,
1: you had said that you didn't when you when you were watching Making a Murderer. You didn't realize how manipulative the system can be, and I think with John Juca's case, it it is it is it is so obvious how manipulative the system can be when you look at the prosecutor and you look at all of the characters and all of the factors, if you had to give John any advice based on your work and, and your experience with this, I mean, he's been doing this for what is it now? 14 years. Yep. He's been, he's been fighting for 14 years. What would you say to John or people like him?
2: Just keep fighting. I mean, I ask, that's the last question that I ask, um, at the end, you guys got a siren
1: going? Yeah, it's Wormtown. Am I arrested?
2: I ask at the end of Actual Innocence every time, what can people like me do to help people who have been wrongly convicted? And then I ask them, what advice would you give to someone who has been wrongly convicted? And almost every time it's just keep fighting. Just stay focused. Keep up your routine. Like, Don't let, don't let it suck the life out of you. But I need to go back. Um, one, I live my life on eggshells. I Richard Nicholas is still in prison. He is in prison with that. And like, I said, got 30 minutes for the call. I was recording it, you know. But it was very normal. You know, I asked him, did you kill your daughter? Um, how's your day going? He called me on Christmas. He said, Merry Christmas. And I said, Merry Christmas. You know, what are you doing today? Um, he asked me about the Super Bowl. Like. I think that that helps people who are incarcerated feel more normal. Like when you just talk about everyday things with them, you're not making them feel bad. You're making them feel human. Yeah. Okay. And I need to go back again. So I did not realize that the police could be so manipulative. Didn't realize that prosecutors could be so manipulative, but I don't necessarily think police and prosecutors are born manipulative or are manipulative. I think it's a systemic problem. How are police's performance rated, judged? By number of arrests, right. percentage of arrests. Not percentage of correct arrests. Percent Numbers. Numbers. You got to get the arrest and move on. You're underfunded. You are someone who probably has a high school education, maybe a bachelor's degree, and you're expected to respond to every type of human trauma that a person can experience and find the right person every time. Um, How is a prosecutor's performance rated? Convictions. By number of convictions. Not number of times they achieve justice. Number of convictions. And so when you work in a system that puts pressure on you for quantity over quality, you are going to have wrongful convictions and you are going to take shortcuts. And when the shortcuts work, you're going to take them again and again and again, and somebody's going to get wrongfully convicted. So I think that, yeah, maybe some prosecutors and some police are not amazing people, but I think the system itself encourages that.
1: Do you see any sort of solution there? Do you see any sort of of way to change that?
2: Gosh, I hope so. I, I mean, I think we need to start over. I think that I it's going to be hard. I think that we try to correct our social injustice with criminal justice, and it ends up being the other way around. We have social injustice and criminal social yeah you know what I mean but I think that we need to look into putting more money into educating youth on money um and not just passing out money but here's money and how to use it and I think that we need to look at how we rate the performance of the police and Of prosecutors. You know, if you are judged by quantity, that's what you're going to aim for. But if you're judged by quality, if there are consequences for messing up, like if I was a therapist and I made a child even worse, I would get in trouble. I don't know. If I worked as a security guard somewhere and I kicked someone out who wasn't shoplifting, I would get in trouble. So why are there no consequences for? for that kind of behavior from people responsible for justice.
1: It's a great question. Maybe because they're put on a pedestal in the first place.
0: That's a good point too. Yeah. Um, Brooke, what is your favorite one of these podcasts to produce? Pick favorites. We're asking you don't, but don't you dare ask us the one who pays your rent.
2: I can tell you who pays my rent no, and I kidding. can tell you my podcast of passion. Um, um, I can tell you, I make the most money from cold case files. But if I could only do one podcast, it would probably be actually, in a sense, it was my baby.
0: That wasn't the question I asked. Well, I like the answer. But don't you dare ask us it.
2: <laughs> right? What, what's your. F- okay, where's Mara Murray? That's my question. Okay,
0: I, that, was, that was my last topic here. What Skype's do you, breaking up. Yeah. <laughs> what, <laughs> what do you think? What are your feelings on the case?
2: Um, in the beginning, I thought she probably got lost in the woods and succumbed to the elements and probably animals took care of her. Um, but because of your more recent episodes, I think she is probably under that cement block.
1: Oh, very interesting. Very, the A-frame cement block. Yeah very interesting well we'll we'll uh we'll talk
0: offline on that okay if you want
2: yeah I do <laughs> well you, let's
0: not hang let's not let that hang there uh let uh there has let's been... talk
2: offline and you can put it on patreon <laughs> exactly
0: <laughs> yeah save it, it might, material here. it might make missing more Murray. um <laughs> well we uh the slab at the a frame has been ground penetrating radar twice um by two different companies. Uh, now, there still isn't really conclusive anything on that, but we think that the slab was built before Mora went missing that's that's what the data shows it's not conclusive yet okay but that that as far as the a frame goes that's uh, that's what uh what we got there and we also brought cadaver dogs there in october, and uh there was no reaction um in that area
2: so When they did the ground penetrating radar, what exactly does that detect?
1: Oh, well, so (laughs) much like you'd you'd see something that it it almost looks like a seismograph or maybe something that has like waves. So it runs over. It's like a lawnmower type machine and it runs over the, the area and then it shows you on the display and they can print it out as well. It shows you what the ground looks like underneath and the earth comes together in a certain way
0: and you see it come together in waves. It's kinda like layers. It's kinda like like if you imagine like a sonogram? Yeah, yeah. Like if imagine if you cut a cake in half and then you looked at the Mm. half that you cut and so you see kinda like layers. So you cross section of Yeah. yeah. So you know what it looked like if there's no anomaly there. But you can kinda see if something looks anomalous.
1: Now when you're looking at the concrete, like the concrete slab, what they saw was concrete reinforced with some sort of um, like rebar, which is pretty typical for concrete when you're putting a slab down and you you need something to be on top of it. They did find that it was weird that it was just the perimeter, not the middle. Which doesn't it's that that's only weird in the sense that whatever they put on top of it, which just we still needed, don't know, which we still don't know just needed support on the perimeter it it didn't need any support in the middle or significant support and then below that they just they see the earth and the earth looks like typical earth with no anomalies no anomalous feature meaning nothing was pulled out of it and then put back in
2: so if it wasn't an intact body if it were just parts of a body it would have detected just would it have detected that because i think that that would probably descend like um What's the word? Decompose. Faster, right.
1: right? Yeah. It technically wouldn't even detect... Like, you wouldn't see it and say, that's a body right there. You would look at the the, the son- sonograph or the, the image. You'd look at that and you'd say, here are lines that are consistent with the layers, and here's where something is not consistent.
0: You can't tell what it is. You can just tell that something is occurred there. Or so- yeah, something was dug there at one point, you know, or something is in there if maybe it was reflective or something like that but otherwise you wouldn't even be able to tell if something was put in there
1: now there could be numerous reasons why you'd have something be anomalous if there wasn't any digging like if you if you were doing a gpr underneath a rain gutter that had the spout at the end and you were running it over the ground where the water had consistently you know drained then you'd see where water runoff would be. And that would show you an inconsistency or a breakup in the layers. Like when we were doing it at the uh, at one of the properties up there and we found an anomalous area in the front front yard, the uh, company doing the GPR identified the anomalous area and then we went up there a few weeks later and we dug. It turned out to be big rocks. Big big rocks that they weren't boulders but they were big rocks like the size of bowling balls we're not sure why they were there so we dug they were all together they were all together for whatever reason yeah so they they pulled those rocks up and they said that's where the that's where the anomaly was this is the anomaly and then doing the due, due diligence
0: they looked beneath the rocks cuz maybe somebody put something beneath the rocks and that might describe why there's an anomaly, which turns out to be these boulders on top of something, you know,
1: right? But there was right. nothing underneath those rocks either. So Got there's it. there's numerous reasons why those rocks could be there.
2: Okay, I have one more thing to add. The episode oh, sure. where you interviewed, I think it was was it her supervisor at the dorm, yeah, yes. the person who walked her back to her dorm. I think I don't remember who I emailed, I emailed somebody, one of you, about this. Oh, cool. Um, so she was. Talking about Mara kind of, like, being in a trance or whatever, like, not really, if Mara was taking some kind of uh, anti-anxiety medication or sleeping medication, like, I'm not going to give a name brand, but, um, you know, people have been known to sleep sleepwalk and seem awake. I've done I made pancake once in my sleep and when I woke, I didn't know it until I woke up like I answered my door once in my sleep and I didn't know it until I saw the video on my ring video doorbell um, that I got for my apartment from my sponsor. But um, I had talked to someone in my sleep and they believed I was awake like they I sounded very convincing to myself. I would have believed I was awake, but I wasn't awake. And so if she was taking some kind of anti-anxiety or sleeping medication and she took it and it took that person, I think you said 20 minutes to get over there or something about 20 minutes, it hits her system. I think she very well could have been sleepwalking, but appeared awake because of this medication. It's not really officially sleepwalking. And people have driven before. I have bought stuff on Amazon before and got it and didn't know that I bought it until <laughs> I stopped taking that medicine, by the way. But, <laughs> Sounds like awesome
0: yeah, medicine. I, I take some medicine that makes me do that, too, Brooke. But uh, that's a different kind.
2: <laughs> this was a prescription. But, um, yeah, no, I think that if she even if she didn't have a prescription, I think that those those things are easy to come by. And so that could be a possible explanation. And then, you know, she was a runner, but if she was disoriented and knocks on someone's door for help and then is like, you know, it, com- it comes out of her system. Like, however long the half-life of the medicine is, sometimes it's four hours, some are longer acting, eight hours, whatever. And she finds herself locked in some guy's closet. Like, I think that that's possible.
1: Very interesting.
2: That was totally a speculation and a guess, but um, it- it's like, that kind of medication can make a person appear to be awake when they're actually not cognitively there.
0: That's very interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Cool. That's,
1: that's good. That's yeah, good. that's really
0: good, yeah. It's food for thought. Yeah, absolutely. We like to
1: call over here food for
0: thought. Yeah, we we might slap <laughs> that into a Missing moramari episode because uh, that is thought-provoking for sure. Thank you for joining us here today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, make sure to subscribe to Cold Case Files, Actual Innocence and Convicted. And buy the products that she's
1: endorsing because she stands behind her products including ring. Dot
0: com slash
2: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um actually I've gotten two, Crawl so face. probably yeah, all I've... of them.
0: <laughs> but um
2: no really on my favorite sponsor is Bombas. Um because oh, the socks. Yeah Bombus so- I'm wearing them right now. See?
1: They donated um, a million socks. Nice.
2: Yeah, over a million yeah. and they're really needed. Like so when a company makes a great product um, I've talked to them personally. They're very nice. You've talked to and, Bombas? Yeah. Bombas emailed me after, um, Convicted was no longer with its former network and, you know, just to set up a deal and they were really nice. Here's, I'm um,
1: putting it out here now. We need, uh, I heard an ad for Bombas. I heard what they did. Sorry to interrupt, but that's, okay. that's what I do. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, we need to get Bombas. So this is our call now to Bombas. I'll
2: give him your, I'll give him your email.
1: Great. Cool. Um, All right.
2: I'll have my people call your people. But seriously, Bombus is a great company. Um when I was first starting out, they were my very first sponsor on in Actual Innocence. They sent me a hundred pair of socks to give to my clients.
1: Stop that's it. That's awesome hundred. Good for them. Good for them. Yeah. I heard an ad, I heard what they did. They they thought they when they when they sold a million socks they were gonna donate a million socks. Correct me if I have the story wrong, but that's the story I I think. That
2: and then their owner got a tattoo the
1: owner got a tattoo yeah a Bombas tattoo because he said you know if we if we sell a million socks and we're able to donate a I'll million socks i'll get a tattoo That's so cool. so we did yeah and the second i heard that i was like that is it's just a perfect podcast sponsor and uh and i want them get your people on this
2: i'll send them to you
1: <laughs> and can we do this more can we have this be like a regular uh regular thing
2: yeah, absolutely. I was so honored when um, I was introduced and you guys asked me to be on the show.
0: Thank you. I absolutely yeah.
2: think you guys do great work.
0: Yeah, well, we think you do too. So thank you very much. And thanks, thanks. to Jordan, that rascal, for introducing us.
2: Right. I love Jordan. Listen to um, the Nighttime Podcast.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: A.